Hi, everyone. Just a reminder that this show is not legal advice, trading advice, financial advice, or personal advice. Enjoy the show, and thank you very much. This show is sponsored by Inco, the world's first blockchain-based health tech financial solutions platform. Yo, yo, welcome to Crypto 101, the average consumer's guide to cryptocurrency. This is Matthew Aaron. You go to the store, you give them paper money, they give you goods. You take that paper money anywhere in your community, anywhere in your country, or you change that paper money for other paper money and go to different countries and buy goods with it. There's nobody there that can stop you and take your money from you, unless they rob you, but take your money from you or stop that transaction. There's nobody that's just going to cut in the middle between you and the grocer, you and the merchant, and say, no, you can't do this. But now that everything is online, everything is digital, companies can start or governments can start stopping the internet service, putting blocks on what you're doing, how you're transacting. So this kind of thought led us to a simple question. Should transacting, transacting being buying goods with a currency, be all right? Well, it's kind of a loose question. It's kind of big and it's kind of broad. That's why this is a two-part episode and we invited our old friend back, Hazim Al-Nakib, to help me talk about human rights, the blockchain, banking, and the future. So before we get into that conversation, please go to Crypto101podcast.com, join our Facebook group, our Twitter, our Instagram to keep up to date, to join the conversation, become a patron. The patrons are the backbone of our community. We appreciate your patronage. Check out our YouTube channel, Crypto 101 with Matthew Aaron. There we put previews and roundups to give you my own personal opinion on the episodes that we produce. Also, if you're not subscribed to us on iTunes, please subscribe to us on iTunes, CastBox, SoundCloud, or any other place you get your podcasts. And one more announcement. From now on, you're going to start seeing a little orange icon sometimes pop up in the Crypto 101 feed. That's ICO 101 with Aaron Paul, another great podcast from the Crypto 101 family. Now, without further ado... Here's my conversation with Hazem. Hazem Al-Nakib, welcome back to Crypto 101, sir. Thank you. It's it's an absolute pleasure to be back. Hazem, what we want to talk about today is first, I want everybody to know who you are. I think this is your third or fourth time on the show. So if you would, <laughs> <laughs> if you would could you please just give a brief introduction of yourself? Absolutely. So uh, just to reiterate, it's an absolute pleasure to be back. It means uh, either I'm doing something tremendously wrong or maybe be slightly right that you're, you're having me back over and over. But um, well, you keep just coming in on general, the show. So um, you keep coming back- on the show, so we must be doing something right, too. <laughs> of course, of course. No, I, I love our conversations. But um, in general, background in banking, studied in Toronto, started uh, a few different incubators and accelerators, got into blockchain and DLT and crypto and, and advanced technologies like AI. Currently, I sit on the board of several companies and, and maybe wear a couple of different hats between companies like Humany, CoinFirms, Currency, FSuccess, and, and a couple of other companies, as well as doing um, you know government and corporate advisory on different things. But a lot, a lot of it is how to leverage blockchain 
blockchain, distributed ledger technology, more broadly tokenization, asset tokenization, and applying these technologies in combination with things like artificial intelligence and biometrics and so on, and applying them to solving existing problems, be that wealth distribution, you know, automation and, and process efficiency and, and management and so on, and various other areas, you know, transparency could be things like land titles or health records and, and even identity. And I think a lot of it ties into many of the things we'll be talking about today, which are rights, which you and I may have some fun defining because it, it gets philosophical. So you can draw on your thesis work um, for that convo. <laughs> if I could remember, it was already 13 to 15 years ago. But what we are going to talk about today, and this is for the <laughs> audience, I was having a conversation the other day with Tracy Leparulo and we stumbled on something about the mm. right to transact. And this was already down through a long rabbit hole, in my opinion, of talking about what is a human right. And we, me and Tracy were not prepared to have that conversation. But when we did say it, <laughs> I thought, hey, I know who's going to have this conversation with me. And that's Hazen because this is his You should have brought Tracy on too. We would have, we would have the three of us have <laughs> spoken about it. We, we could have. We could have. Maybe, maybe next time. Maybe next time. She'll listen okay. to us. She'll be like, you guys are totally wrong. She's going to come up and tell us what's up. But what we want to do today is we want to just talk about a couple things is basic human rights. I want to go then to the right to the internet because that came up. It's a highly debated topic, people's right mm -hmm. to internet access. Then one of your favorite topics, banking, the people's right to mm -hmm. be a bank, have a bank, have a bank account. And then it goes into, I would say, after that track of talking about the right to transact. What does it mean to transact? And, you know, back in the day, people would just... No, take cash. You earn money, you get cash in your hand, and you transact with anybody you can basically meet. Of course, your circumference wasn't that far away. Five miles is probably tops, but that circle expanded to globally now. What right does people have to put their money into the hands of somebody else for their liberty and their best interests? So, Hazem, let's start with basic human rights. <laughs> okay, so... So, so there's a couple of different things just when I think trying to assess what is and is not a human right. So obviously there's tons and tons of international instruments globally, right? Obviously when looking at human rights, there are two ways you can go about it. There's obviously there is some sort of higher up kind of these natural fundamental pillars of being a human being and being alive and interacting with people that creates different human rights. That's mm -hmm. the idea of, you know, natural, either a natural law or, or, you know, these different predispositions that are embedded in, in the foundations of a community. And these exist no matter what. They're like higher end constraints on humans or community behavior. Mm -hmm. So that's one way. The other way is forget that. Let's let's not look at that. It's just whatever is based on what's accepted by communities, by individuals in the community, or that's passed into law, et cetera, et cetera. That's more, as I'm sure you know, the kind of positivist approach. And the reason I'm going at it from a legal approach is because legal is just a manifestation. Before that, it is either what we agree and what we can observe based on consensus between people, communities, societies, and, and globally, mm -hmm. or it is there are these overarching kind of principles that dictate and govern what we do, how we behave, and how we act. Now, to go down the legal route, because we can either talk about these are things that exist no matter what, or these are actually things codified in some way into law globally or by jurisdiction. But I, I think that we should, we should do both. I think that when we should look at law. Of course, let's not, let's not look at natural law <laughs> uh, because, again, those are those moral principles of a community, as you said. Mm -hmm. But we should look at laws that are in and codified. 
but also the ways that they should change for the future. Because I was just looking, you know, the one of the things that are talk, being talked about in the United States, for example, right now, is the ability and the possibility with the new Supreme Court justice to overturn Roe versus Wade. Now, laws that do come mm. up create consequences, and they can come up in the, 19, in the 70s from one uh, legal perspective, and then be overturned later. So I think that we should look at both. Yeah, I agree. So what we can do is is come at it from the angle of kind of moral overarching principles and then to the legal side. But the issue, the largest issue is obviously interpretation, because mm. when we start looking at, you know, judges and what they do and so on, it's obviously open, not necessarily to the whims, but to the moral interpretation. If it is moral, it mm -hmm. could be prudential, which is, you know, based on self-interest of a particular judge or legislator or whatever. Um, but they have their own interpretation based on their experiences and so on and so forth, potentially of those overarching moral principles of how they interpret various moral principles that they think are required by that society at that particular point in time. And then there is what's actually brought into the legislative or the, the legal arena by precedent or by legislation or mm -hmm. whatever else. So I think those are the three levels and three tiers. But just to, to start, I think at a global level, there are probably two different types of instruments, if I'm not mistaken. There are declarations and conventions, right? So declarations are not binding whatsoever. Conventions right. typically are, you know. So a declaration, an example of that is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights by the UN, you know, in, mm -hmm. which was passed or, or agreed upon, I think, in 1948. In terms of conventions, there there are lots of others. Probably one of the most notable is the European Convention on Human Rights, which which we can get into a little bit later. And so there are lots of different instruments ranging from you know torture to human trafficking to so many other areas. But then even within human rights as well, there is the distinction between social rights and civil rights, civil liberties, which is what right. you were talking about. So the way to break them up, I think, mentally is some have to do with social and economic and some have to do with political. This would be a, a good way to break them down. A lot of what we see codified in law are usually those that are political as opposed to social and economic. And the reason why is because there is this continuous debate about bringing social and economic rights into the essentially foyer of the legislator. Why would we bring them into law? Civil liberties need to be protected by law and defined by law. But social and economic need to be handled by, you know, in some jurisdictions, the executive, for example, which which creates policy on a particular platform that aims to protect it. You know, things like health care, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, so on and so forth. But, you know, there are so many different um, opinions and, and ways of thinking about this. So I think from this standpoint, if we can get specific on on the different rights that, that we want to talk about, which you did outline at the beginning, I think that will pave the way to digging deep into this. I think what I said is just laying the groundwork and the foundation for the best ways to think about it, be it the overarching moral principles, the difference between what is and ought, you know, what exists today based on consensus, based on, you know, soft law like uh, declarations, what is law, conventions, how they're adhered to, what are the sanctions in case, you know, states or people break them, which people doesn't really apply. These are primarily for states mm -hmm. and the legislation that they pass to protect individuals in, in, in their states, but also what ought to be 
what things need to be changed? You know, should things be enforced a lot, a lot better or a lot more effectively? Should they be a lot more lenient to allow people to do what they want to do? When does somebody's freedom begin infringing on another individual's freedom or on the freedom of society at large to make certain decisions or to be protected from certain things? And I think that is the most important thing. That is the the line that everybody needs to be focusing on. When does one person or one individual's freedom end and another person's begin? Is there overlap? What, is that, what does that overlap look like? And then separately is what you were talking about, which is, well, there are certain principles that have developed over a long period of time that may well change very, very rapidly and very quickly in today's world and perhaps what we can do about that or how we should look at that, how, we, how should we assess, evaluate, and so on and so forth. And then maybe the last piece is what are underlying really embedded core moral principles that apply today in this changing technological world where we need to expand them and extend them so that they cover a lot of the things that we're talking about. And you mentioned, sorry, this is quite a, a lengthy tangent, but you mentioned, you know, the right no to transact and so on. But as far as I know, you know, the right to a bank account encompasses that. And and so that, you know, digging as deep as we can into what, what exists will shed a lot of light as well as how they're interpreted in different contexts. And I will build on this fundamental point later on when we start talking about other things that's on my mind. But for example, the right to have a bank account within the EU, that bank account need not, for example, be a savings account. You don't need to have the right to, uh, to open a bank account if you have another bank account. You can be turned down if you don't meet the KYC AML requirements, but also you may not be able to do it because you have to pay an annual fee. That is accepted, but it must uh, have the capability of being able to accept payments and make payments. Right. You know, that's on their website. <laughs> so, so looking at this, and I, I wanted to start at the De Declaration of Human Rights, and I wanted to start there because it outlines some, I think, some fundamental beliefs that we all have. And also it creates a little mm -hmm. bit of tension with some things that people are calling human rights. Anybody yep. who is not familiar with it, the articles, for example, Article 3, would say everyone has the right to life, liberty, and the security of person. Article 4 would be no one shall be held in slavery or servitude. Going down to even, let's say, uh, Article 13, everyone has the right to freedom of movement and residence within borders of a state and the right to leave a country if they would like to. Of course, going to Article 14, the right to asylum. Now, these rights, I don't know how to say it. They're important. They're, mm -hmm. they're, they're the, the difference between life and living a life that has meaning or death or becoming property yourself. One of the biggest criticisms to some of these, say, rights of economic rights or rights to banks and internet is that how could we even start thinking that the right to internet should even be comparable to the, the freedom from slavery or persecution or the right to uh, have residence? So as you know, what you're describing, it's not law, right? It's, it's, it's a declaration that's kind of um, – right. it's, it's guidelines for, for people to follow based on, on very commonly accepted human rights and so on. With regards to the majority of them is that, yes, individuals all have these rights, but more so it's pressure on governments. That's, that's the purpose of, right. of a lot of these instruments, right? It's all of the member states need to ensure that these rights are adhered to in uh, and, uh, by – 
the different government bodies such that people have these rights in that jurisdiction. For example, the slavery and servitude piece is, is incredibly important for, let's say, human trafficking, some of the others for various other things, you know. But also, I think for anybody that's listening who really wants to dig deep into what rights are, you know, rights, duties, and obligations, they should look at uh, Hofheldian uh, analysis and, and how that analysis is conducted. I won't go into it now, but um, moving swiftly on, the the point I would make about how to look at these is is what type of obligation it puts onto the state, right? There's positive and there's negative obligations. So negative obligations are like the state should not kill its people, whereas positive obligations are like they need to you know, put into law certain uh, criminal uh, sanctions for if an individual, a private citizen, kills another private citizen. I'm just giving examples, but that's how we should look at it, right? There are these positive and negative obligations that are placed on states, and that is incredibly evident by the, let's say, the European Convention on Human Rights, right? So so that is how that operates. And the reason I use that example is because there's an actual court in Strasbourg where cases are taken, right, on uh, member states of the European Council. Uh, it's not the EU, it's the European Council. Uh, now, back to your point about why is this as important as, like, access to the internet and so on. I don't know if I would say personally that it is, but I think that socially and at a community level, you can draw comparisons because access to the internet, as we become more and more globalized, where information becomes promulgated you know, instantaneously, it becomes part of an individual's freedom of expression, being able to access information, being able to access knowledge, being able to voice themselves and so on. And actually, there are cases, if I'm not mistaken, that have been taken to Strasbourg, so as part of the European Convention on Human Rights, where, but when I say Strasbourg, I mean the court in Strasbourg that essentially enforces and that cases are taken to, where a country, it may have been Turkey, where they had uh, not allowed access to Google, and they, uh, you know, they were found guilty of a violation of an article of, of the European Convention on Human Rights. So I think it is getting there. It may not be widely accepted that it is at the same level globally, but you know, you could say the same thing about, let's say, torture or degrading treatment. You know what I mean? Degrading treatment arguably could be, you know, a police officer slaps an individual on the face and makes them feel really afraid and demeans them. You know, that is, you know, that cannot be derogated from ever in with the European Convention on Human Rights. Again, the reason I use it is because it's enforced, right? Um, there are sanctions tied to it. It isn't everybody does what they want. There is a margin of appreciation that allows a state to do what they need to do. There's this kind of like deference by the court, but not always, you know, it depends on the topic and, and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I would say, look, it's it, it comes down to freedom of expression. That's what you're describing. And so it depends, do we tie or place an importance on freedom of expression at the same level as not being held in servitude and so on? And I would say, yes, you know, freedom of expression is about the pursuit of truth mm -hmm. um, and being able to voice oneself about their, about literally anything. And I would even go further and say that freedom of expression, as well as, you know, not being trafficked or held in servitude, not being killed and so on and so forth. Once you encapsulate it as freedom of expression, in my opinion, it does get to the same level. If not, then probably.
probably not because obviously it's not a protected right. But once you do that, it becomes part of the self-determination of an individual or a people. Now, self-determination for those that are listening is is a very interesting, I think, doctrine um, where every set of people, this this applies to groups of people, you know, have have the the right to their, you know, to determine their political, social, and cultural future. It typically refers to groups of people when they're in pursuit of creating their own state. That is usually where this doctrine is used um, in international law. However, I would, you know, extend that also to the individual in being able to determine their own future as part of the community. There are different levels and tiers. It is their right to participate in the community's self-determination to determine their cultural, social, and political future. And if that is the case, access to knowledge, being able to voice themselves, so on and so forth, as part of freedom of expression, is incredibly fundamental. Thank you for that thought. I think that you touched on a, a lot of amazing things, and I think that bring, brought us straight into the that the internet would be a human right or is considered a human right or being talked about as a human right by the UN. And one of the points mm-hmm. that you brought up is the freedom of expression, the freedom of speech, freedom of communication. Um, these are important tools in any kind of, you know, free government, free democracy is to be able to express your opinions. And when you've been, and the reason why I brought up the Declaration of Human Rights, even though it is a guideline for, for countries to mm. use as, as a framework, an outline for them to, you know, make sure that, you know, the people that live within their borders are being treated as fairly as possible, even though their, you know, culture, morals, and so on and so forth that they look at while making their laws. It's a really good place to start because it under, because then we can start understanding what these fundamental ideas, and you might call them natural law, <laughs> of morality and, and upholding people's dignity, that we should have a starting point. And when you say freedom of speech, expression, communication, this goes to liberty, this goes to Article 3, and also we're, we're now we're understanding how the internet falls into that. So I really appreciate that. And, and self-determination as well. So now we have the internet in there. Internet as being a human right because we have now de- defined it as expression, communication, or speech. Correct? Yeah, definitely. So... <laughs> um, <laughs> And now, a word from our sponsor, Anko. Hey, everyone. I want to let you know about Anko. Anko is the world's first blockchain-based health tech financial solution platform. Health tech is new in solutions in overcoming evolutionary challenges, diseases, disabilities, and longevity of life. Blockchain health tech will drive development in diagnostics, treatment, and research. Anko has been created to deliver health tech innovations to the forefront of society. Inco's platform will deliver high-impact projects. They will be supported by an ecosystem infrastructure via their blockchain platform. All of this is possible through the utility of digital financing, health tech, and evolving ledger-based technologies. Inco's platform will deliver Inco's own blockchain that will unite health tech projects with three further pillars of applications, Inco IB, Prime, and Smart Cap Solutions. To drive the next stage of human evolution, Inco is dedicated to building an innovative ecosystem, which they created an environment based on trust, integrity, and openness. If you're interested in their token presale, which starts on July 27th, go to Incoin.com. That's A-E-N-C-O-I-N.com 
and contribute in the first 24 hours of the token presale to enjoy up to 55% bonus AEN tokens. Again, that's A-E-N-C-O-I-N.com to register. Now, back to our show. So just to clarify one point that you said, uh, natural law is, is referring to something very, very specific. It's talking about, um, and I, I didn't clarify this earlier, natural law is more about, you know, the foundation of law and its purpose and, and so on and so forth is dependent on these kind of overarching moral principles as opposed to, you know, what, what human beings do and solely based on social facts and consensus. No, it's reason and purpose is driven by over overarching moral principles. So I'm just extending that thought mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, to apply elsewhere. And my heavy focus on law is because uh, what law provides is, um, and, and what we mean by law, I want to extend that point, is that non-compliance. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early, so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. results in some sort of sanction. It need not, but there is an understanding that one must comply, essentially, be it an individual, a state, or, or so on and so forth. And with the declarations, the guidelines, you know, as well as with um, conventions, a lot of these are more, you know, soft law instruments. But in international law, they can still turn into law, okay? So they turn into customary international law by two factors. And those two factors are state practice and opinion. Your state practice is more about the behavior and the consensus of states. I'm talking at the state level. And then opinion juris is the intention that it is essentially international or, or customary international law. So that's the funny thing about international law, which is a little bit different. You know, you don't have a legislator just pushing it out. You have the International Court of Justice, but which perhaps sometimes isn't as clear, but it does a great job at, at uh, landscaping what, what the current law is internationally. Mm -hmm. um, but moving from there, the reason I focus on Strasbourg and the European Court of, of Human Rights and the European Convention on Human Rights um, is because, if I'm not mistaken, this is the court that probably hears the most cases globally on issues of human rights. So if somebody wants to, and, and what, that go, what that goes and does is it means that those rights that you and I are talking about become so much more fleshed out. You know what I mean? Um, they, they, they have context and content. They have substance because they have gone through so many iterations of so many different cases of so many everything. So then they become a lot clearer and a lot more crystallized. Not to say that mistakes aren't done and, you know, sometimes they're a little bit weird and off and I can think of a few examples. But as a whole, 
um, there is progress and progression and, and this evolution of what it is and what they mean. Because if you and I just say freedom of expression, we can literally extend that to probably anything if we really tried hard enough, right? Um, so that's why this is this is a good thing. So when I say that, it's a good thing to use uh, Strasbourg as an example because they've had so many different cases and we're like, it's insane how many cases that they've they've had over the last several years across a range of issues you know, including discrimination, for example, where there's now flesh has been added to the bones and, and we can really understand it contextually. It doesn't apply everywhere. It only applies to the, the members of, of the European Council, but it gives us an even stronger starting point if we want to understand it instead of starting with just, you know, moral principles very far away. But the way and the reason why it's important then for individuals like like yourself and, and many of the listeners to then engage with moral principles is because it allow you know, overarching moral principles is because then it allows them to see the difference between what is and ought that you mentioned earlier. You know, what exists today, what ought to exist in the future. And and that will give them, I think, the best perspective in, in knowing what human rights are, what they should be and, and how things should develop. I apologize. I feel like I didn't answer to your question. Um, <laughs> so if you could please ask me it again. I'll no, 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 no. I, I don't think there's questions and answers. I think this is a conversation because perfectly honest, I don't know where this conversation is going to go and I don't know what you're <laughs> going to say. Honestly, I don't know what I'm going to say. But what I think is important to understand uh, from the listener's point of view is the reason why I'm asking these questions the way that I am is that we can't have something become a human right without understanding the human rights. And I'm really happy that you brought, mm -hmm. up, brought up the European uh, Court of Human Rights. I also think that once you say the internet is a human rights right, then fine, that's great. But then you have banking and banking the unbanked. And now those global transactions, those transactions are happening over the internet. So if you don't have a free internet or, or the idea of the internet, and we frame that as the internet being a human right, then how does banking work with something that might be controlled by either corporations or government or, or what have you? And then we're going to talk about transacting. So I think that's why I went to the internet first before anything else. Yeah, I need to clarify an important point. So I agree with certain parts that you said, but I'd like to, to clarify one point, and that's because we're conflating two things. The Internet, a, a fundamental human right, is it a fundamental human right by law? Is it a fundamental human right by extending freedom of expression? And I know I mentioned earlier uh, that it is according to you know the, the court in Strasbourg. But what that was about, if I'm not mistaken, and the case law around that was actually primarily around the state blocking access to certain uh, websites like Google and, and various others. And there are other examples of that and, and so on and so forth. But it's very different, right? It goes back to the positive and negative obligations that are placed on a state. It is the state itself taking a particular action that blocks a particular outcome or, or course of action by an individual, which is, you know, either publishing material, promulgating material, being able to, to search for things online, things like that, you know, and when things are blocked. Now, just bare minimum access to the internet, that is not yet a, a, a human right, you know? Mm -hmm. So so right. I don't think, as far as I know, that there is any case law in the world, I could be mistaken, and this is something I would need to look up. And if any of our listeners know, please send it to, to myself and Matt. But as far as I know, there is nothing that's codified or even soft law that says that every individual should have access to the internet. There's a lot of people trying, and, and obviously it's part of, you know, I think that there's been uh, two two expansions with this. And again, please, the listeners, correct me if I'm wrong. From a P 
piece that The Guardian did over the past uh, year, they mm-hmm. talked about different countries ratifying and making that internet access should be a human right, Estonia being one of those. And I, I really yes, want to... correct. That is access. And the other one is, is of course, what the United States is dealing with right now, and um, I think the, United, the, the EU has already dealt with it, is not allowing the commerce, the institutions or the companies, the ability to manipulate the content of the internet into their favor. And that's not just access or, or speed or, or what have you, that is putting stuff at the forefront or signing exclusivity contracts with X companies. So you're only using, say, you're only seeing ads for Coca-Cola and Pepsi's on the back shelf. And I think that they called it in the Guardian's piece, shelfifying or grocerifying <laughs> the internet as say for example you would pay the most money to be on the middle shelf in the middle row if you're a coca-cola and the people in the companies that are on the bottom or on the top shelf are paying less money for you know strategic placement yeah so so going back to to what you said yeah my my point was that there's nothing at a at an international level oh, okay um, i'm sorry that, I, I didn't, that says I, access to internet no no worries at all yeah no you were right though about estonia and and I believe there's a few other places. There are several um, international initiatives that are solely fake, focused on that, funded by a lot of uh, larger intergovernment, intergovernmental agencies, NGOs, and so on, that are pushing for this and pushing for access to the internet to be a, um, a a fundamental human right. And the same thing with, you know, for example, identity. I believe it's if I'm not mistaken, Article Six of of the Declaration on Human Rights that says, you know, it's it's something like uh, everybody has the right to to recognition as as an individual uh, and or as a person before the law. Correct me if if I got the words mixed up. But also the sustainability goes, the the sustainable development goes, then go on to build on providing uh, legal identity to everybody, right? And so. That includes the right to have an identity. What that means, and that can be extended to having, you know, for example, a digital identity, and and that goes to the, you know, the the over one billion. So there are some reports that put it between one and two billion, one and three billion, slightly under a billion of undocumented people, and providing them with digital identities as well as as many of of the refugees globally, providing that's, them with that's digital crazy. identities, and them having the right to have. An identity, whether it's digital or not, right? Mm-hmm. But the the language that's used can be extended there, and and I truly, uh, truly believe that it should, right? Having an identity, allowing, being able to passport, being, you know, legally real, right? That is literally what we're talking about. Being real in front of the law mm-hmm. requires you to have an identity. If you don't, you don't. The, all these people are are undocumented. This is something Humanique uh, is is tackling with. You know, the unbanked, but also undocumented. It provides a digital identity to people, but also several other initiatives, many other initiatives um, that are aimed around this. A fantastic organization is ID2020 that is aimed at getting everybody who doesn't have an identity a digital identity. Um, and that digital identity then provides them access to different things, right? If, if you think about it, you, you, need, you essentially need a digital identity to do anything, Right? All of your info is, is tied together in, in one way or another. Right. Uh, to get a bank account, you need an identity to, to some degree to do X, to do Y, and so on. So when we start talking about bank accounts, the interesting flip side to that is, well, open a bank account. It requires you to have a certain level of identity. There are different degrees and so on, but let's say you need to be legally recognized as, as being a person based on certain documentation that you have, digital or not. Therefore, 
if everybody has the right to do that if they meet certain requirements. If they don't meet those requirements, they're not entitled to a bank account. Well, does that now mean that we that they have the right to pursue those requirements, including identity and, and having an identity and tying that with Article 6 and the of the Declaration on Human Rights and the sustainable development goals and so on to enable people to have the right to an identity, essentially, which I, I think the case should incredibly easily be made for it. But in practice and in implementation, it, of course, becomes very, very difficult. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is is the... Uh, the the where the real issue comes in a lot of it is about implementation right um are things practical and so on and so forth and and that is more of a question at least um from the standpoint of a lot of companies as as well as governments well when the technology reaches a certain level we can go out and do it as opposed to individuals coming to us and getting you know x y and z because now you can just promulgate it if they have access to the internet and access to the identity. You you go through the internet to get them their digital identity, which <laughs> right. enables them to get the bank account, right? So no, they're really all tied together as yep. uh, as elements of, of 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 living a life in today's world and being uh, an interconnected participant in both local and global markets, but also just having the right and having access to all of these things. And and you you use this word quite a bit, and I agree with it. A lot of it is about access, right? It's not the right to a thing. It's it's the right to be able to pursue it without any barriers or hindrances placed in your way that prevent you from it. So that the, is also how I look at these things. So let's go into banking, banking the unbanked, the right to a bank account, and what does that mean, the processes of doing that. We've already said how and you said it perfectly. I wish I said it so perfectly uh, before. We could have saved probably 20 minutes of this conversation. Everything is tied together. We saw human rights and the internet and identity and everything. But we're still trying to get to transacting. Let's talk about banks first. How do they get these people with the without identification, without a, a person under the law, like you said, get a bank account? Do we first have to give them an ID? And then... What I think we're seeing here is the KYC AML. People need to have this to get a bank account. Is this something that should be done, that you have to provide all of this? I think why why do I ask this is because now we have to talk about is banking, is transacting a human right? And not just a human right as, say, as a declaration, but everybody has the fundamental ability to transact because it's their their liberty, the right to pursue happiness. Happiness is, is a form of wealth. Happiness is a form of occupation or, or, or any other way you want to put it. And some and tra- transacting is a way of doing that. If you're not using cash, how are you doing that? And people are going digital, digital across borders, across towns, across cities, across states. Now, I mentioned this, the KYC AML, is because I thought Puerto Rico was a very good example of what that happened over there with the hurricane. Insurance companies come in and they need to pay out insurance for houses that were blown away. The government needs to reimburse people for houses that were blown away or losses to, you know, uh, property. Most of these people were in makeshift houses, undeclared, unregistered, no address. And this is just some loopholes in the law. You have people that are, say, in makeshift houses, makeshift communities, makeshift cities without an identity or even with then without a proper address, and you can't get reimbursed by governments for natural disasters. So this goes mm-hmm. into banking. This goes into how much control should a government have or the law have to allow people to do something that maybe will decide is a 
basic human right. Yeah, so so you always take us uh, down uh, this direction about how much how much power the the government or, or the, the regulators <laughs> and the legislators should have. But I, I agree that. with you. No, it's okay. I agree with you in the sense that it is it's it's an incredibly nuanced question, and also really, you know, even if we agree that uh, you know X, let's say X is a fundamental human right. That still needs to be codified or there needs to be international law instruments that require member states or signatories um, to bring it into domestic law, which is obviously, you know, it's it's still a long shot. But again, we're talking about, you know, what ought to be. You you, you began with the KYC and AML and, and all of that stuff. Well, right now in the EU, like we mentioned earlier, you have the right to a bank account. The bank account must be able in terms of uh, capability to allow you to accept payments and make payments. That's what we're referring to by transacting, right? You To define it just very uh, simply, you can make payments and you can receive payments, essentially. As of right now, you obviously need the right documentation with the majority of banks if, if you look in Africa or elsewhere. And if you don't, then you're usually put into a database where of you know, your, your contact info, if you have it, is stored and you've been rejected. You can be rejected for various reasons, one of which is, is not uh, completing the appropriate KYC. But there are, you know, there are many different solutions that have emerged over the last, you know, five to 10 years for those either without the capacity for funds or without the right documentation, which uh, create, you know, micro momentary bank accounts, for example. Mm -hmm. um, some telecoms have done this. Uh, which allow you, let's say, to pay for things using uh, data and so on and so forth. I, I don't know the specifics, but there are a lot of solutions, be it for cross-border remittances or just for making very quick and easy payments and stuff like that. So solutions are emerging that take advantage of existing infrastructure. Obviously, uh, a solution is, is Humanique, which is beginning to emerge, which is primarily focused around using a token, let's say, and uh, conducting KYC in the sense of just, you know, photo, password, facial recognition, and so on, so that it is really your identity. And then based on that, gives you access to a mobile wallet. And that mobile wallet is essentially your account. And that's where you store. As things continue to get more developed over the next several years, where you have, you know, fiat currencies on the blockchain, or you have various, you know, side chains that allow you to to move currency around from, from different networks and so on, as well as different um, banking products and services brought onto, onto a blockchain network or a network of networks, right? It would be more comparative and competitive. So right now you can pay for things if you want to and if it's accepted, but if it's not accepted or it's regulated against, then that completely removes this option and this possibility. And why would it be banned? Well, it would be banned for various reasons. It's too volatile. Um, it's competing with, you know, the local currency. Um, it is enhancing potential money laundering and so on and so forth. Now you went into AML. Just to highlight AML, because I think I've, I've covered KYC very briefly. Um, there are a lot of components and elements that go into KYC, know your customer and stuff like that. But um, that's a decent overview. The AML side is a little bit different. I think a lot of people conflate AML and KYC, AML being anti-money laundering and, and CTF, which is counterterrorism financing. The thing with AML is we need to know where the funds came from. 
Okay, so KYC is about the individual, or the individuals the money came from, um, and having the right documentation, identity verification, and, and so on, and potentially authenticating that uh, that uh, info and verifying it against, um, let's say, you know, different uh, databases like Interpol and so on and so forth. It can get it's it, there are different levels of extensivity at which it can be. Um, with regards to money laundering, it's actually you know those funds. You know, you go and you deposit money. Uh, into an account, so you put it into your crypto wallet, and then you want to put that money into an account. What's in terms of AML? Where did that money come from? Um, who contributed it? You know, if you're selling something, uh, so on and so forth. And and the reason this is interesting is because obviously, um, what what uh, cryptocurrencies provide is a certain level, a certain level of anonymity. It isn't complete anonymity because you know we know we know your address, right? So I, 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 I'm on the board of advisors of a company called CoinFirm that does this for cryptocurrencies, and they're completely blockchain agnostic. They're they're one of the top leading companies in the world that does this and, and conducts you know forensics and and basically um, checks on the wallet and on the tokens. Right? You know you can trace a, a Bitcoin throughout the public blockchain, right? And you can go through you know, different wallets and so on and so forth and conduct analysis and see whether it's been used, you know, in the dark web and, and stuff like that, what it has been used for, if that wallet is present there and so on. But there have been reports with regards to, let's say, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general that the money laundering uh, percentage is actually very, very low. But it makes organizations, regulators, governments and companies very hesitant to be able to accept it or interact with it for various reasons, including the fact that it's, you know, so Many of them are not treated as currencies per se, um, but because uh, they don't know who it is or where it came from and things like that. So this goes to your point, like, do we have, and you mentioned earlier, do we have the right to complete anonymity? Well, anonymity is never going to be complete. And actually, uh, there needs to be able, there needs to be these controls, mechanisms and precautions put into place to ensure that, you know, you're not financing criminal activity, your funds are not the illicit proceeds of criminal activity and so on and so forth, that these new developing platforms that have the potential for, for a lot of good are not either sabotaged or hijacked or taken advantage of and uh, various loopholes are provided for moving money around and, and the proceeds of illicit uh, whatever activities and so on, because there will always be bad actors. And so I think certain controls should be put in place so that the real potential benefits the, the right people. And actually, like I had said before, there are reports that show it's actually tremendously low. It's much lower than the, you know, in the traditional space where there is a lot of money laundering, you know, the, the traditional, you know, money in a briefcase <laughs> being moved around as opposed to on different blockchain networks, some being more anonymous than others, but at the same time, it's not fully anonymous. And actually, it's quite a bad idea for these bad actors to be using a, a blockchain network to do anything that they're trying to do. So yeah, I also went a slightly different direction, but I, I think those are important pieces to, to take into account when looking specifically at, well, we should be able to have a bank account. Everybody should be able to have access to a bank account, no matter what, even if they don't have the right KYC and uh, AML. So what I would say to that is, it depends obviously what, it depends, are we talking about a you know a crypto wallet or so on? Are we talking about a digital identity or a regular identity? All 
all of these different components and pieces are still unclear. And a lot of it requires on adoption by local governments and, and local regulators and institutions having buy-in and saying, yes, I want to be able to accept that. Yes, we're okay with that. But you know, to I- go back one more point to the conclusion mm-hmm. that you came to earlier, it all of it is about access, right? It's not saying that everybody has to have this bank account. No, everybody has to have access to a bank account if they meet certain requirements that are made inherently easy for them, right? Like a digital identity that anybody can put together if they're undocumented, right? It's if they are undocumented, we will provide them with a streamlined process to get a digital identity that has government buy-in, which the banks then accept um, as part of creating a bank account and they will also accept, let's say, the uh, DLT or, or blockchain wallet and the crypto that they've been storing, you know, because we need to have streamlined processes. And that requires buy-in from all stakeholders, be it NGOs, governments, regulators, banks, telecom companies. And we need these, you know, innovative startups like Humanique and CoinFirm and many others that are driving that charge forward and almost you know, lighting the first candle. That's how I look at it, right? Because it provides capability and that capability then makes it easier for everybody else who can do these things without high expenses. Because what is the reason why banks don't go out and service the unbanked and the undocumented? It's because it's too expensive per person. It doesn't make sense from a bottom line profit Mm -hmm. standpoint for them. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Crypto 101. This is the first part of a two-part episode with Hazm talking about blockchain, transactions, human rights, and the future of technology and what we should start protecting. We need to have this conversation now before legislation and laws are made that restrict us in ways that maybe cash would never be able to. Pay attention to the Crypto 101 feed wherever you get your podcast for part two. And as always, ApogeeCrypto.com, the best place to check your real-time prices. CryptoNews.com for your news. WPOnTheFly.co for a website. And we'll see you in part two. Thank you very much. This is Matthew Aaron. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at trylifemd.com. That's T R Y L I F E M D.com. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.